Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. And now we're going to take just a minute to hear about another great podcast on the Osiris Network. You can listen to all of our shows at osirispod.com. Hi, my name is Tim Wheaton. I'm the host of the Daddy Unscripted podcast. No, it's not just me talking with dads about being dads, and it's not just for dads, that's for sure. What it is is a varied spectrum of inspiring stories and emotional tales from a wide range of guests that come from the world of sports, of music, and even the guy that lives down the street from you. Not that guy, but the other guy. Yeah, that one. I can pretty much guarantee you're going to get something out of every episode. So come check out the Daddy Unscripted podcast. Hey, everybody. It's the Helping Friendly Podcast. This is episode 162. I'm here with Matt. What's up, Matt? Hey, man. How's it going? 
good. Matt is uh, fresh off a trip to, to a sport ball match. There was there were many balls sported today, <laughs> and we are uh, recording on a Sunday night. And um, this we, we're going to talk about. Well, I'll tell you why I, I made that funny joke that no one understood in the in the intro in a second. But um, did 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 you leave Jonathan at the sporting event? I know he loves sports. Could he just not leave? He does love sports, uh, and he just was sporting so hard that I couldn't drag him away from it. So he's <laughs> still out there sporting somewhere. Man, amazing. Brad is um, actually legitimately Brad is in Malibu um, and he said he's with his family, but I actually think he's working on his first solo album at uh, Shangri-La. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope I hope we're able to talk to him about it and hear, hear about that. But um, Matt, we're going to talk about uh, a, a live fish release in a minute. But but first, let's talk about some updates. My first update is that nobody gets to go to MSG. Yes, except for scalpers. If you're a scalper, you get to go to MSG. So uh, that'll be an interesting scene, I guess. (laughs) The cool thing is that scalpers love um, Petrichor and Time Turns Elastic. So I think it seems like it's going to kind of all shaping up to be a pretty good run. Yeah, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, we won't know. We won't be there, but... um... (laughs) Nobody's allowed to go. No, but for real, though, it, it seemed like it seemed similar to how it always is. Did it seem even crazier this time? Like in terms of difficulty getting tickets? I mean, it's just like the system keeps changing. And so, yeah, I think we talked about this, you know, maybe when summer tour went on or sale or something like that. Like it's more frustrating now because you have to spend a lot of time to get to the point where you realize that you're not going to get tickets. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) But I mean, I think I feel like other than that, it's the same thing. There's a ton of demand, especially if they're playing Madison Square Garden on New Year's Eve. So people are not going to get tickets. There's scalpers. There's always going to be scalpers. It doesn't matter what they do, what ticketing service, whether there's platinum tickets or not. There's going to be scalpers trying to buy tickets to resell them for fish at Madison Square Garden on New Year's Eve. It's just going to happen. And we're all going to get in. Right. I mean, like you don't get tickets, you complain, you bitch about the bots, you bitch about Ticketmaster, and then you're there on New Year's Eve in Madison Square Garden watching fish. So it's it's fine. Yeah. The thing that everyone forgot about is that there is a fall tour happening in, I guess, just about two months. Right. It's still a ways away, but kind of cool. That's going to be uh, going to be a few few shows, five shows, six shows, something like that. Right. Yeah, it, it it's dead to me because I'm not going to any of them. So. <laughs> there, that, that is coming, though, but everyone forgot because everyone was like, wait, they're only playing in Madison Square Garden. Well, it's that, like the Baker's Dozen. Uh, you know, they only play there now. And I think people only bought fall tour tickets so that they could trade for other things. So, um, <laughs> you know, Charleston's going to be pretty empty. It's going to be like uh, fish and, you know, Jesse Gemstone and Uncle Baby Billy hanging out at... Uh, <laughs> And, in Charleston, and Runaway Jim, yes, Runaway Jim, and Runaway Jim, yes, and Weekend Wook, and um, we're we're gonna have some stuff to tell you about Charleston and those guys sometime soon. So, Matt, I know that you know what I'm gonna talk about next because you have been involved with this. We just put out a, a press release uh, via Osiris talking about all the new shows we have coming out this fall, and we'll link to it in the show notes if you didn't see it, but. There's one show that I think is particularly interesting that Matt has been hard at work on and we're super excited to tell you guys about. 
And um, Matt, do you do we want to say anything beyond what what's in the release? Just that we're going to be doing an amazing sort of five episode twentieth anniversary of Big Cypress. I think you just said everything that I'm comfortable saying. <laughs> we're uh, we've been working on it for months, and um, we're really months, looking forward years. to years, years. It's going to come up on two years that we've been talking about this when it actually launches. So. That's true. That's a good point. And um, Thursday, November fourteenth, you all are going to be able to hear the first episode. There's a, there's some information in the in the release that that we put out that I'll link to. But it's going to be awesome. And if you like fish, which if you're listening to this, you you probably do, um, you're going to really like it. We have some other really awesome stuff coming up as well. So um, check that out. And Matt, we're it's going to be awesome. That's all I'm going to say. I think so. Um, anything else on the Osiris Network that you've been listening to recently? Well, uh, I was just a guest on the Discologist podcast. Um, they uh, asked me to come on. Uh, Kevin from Disco- Discologist asked me to come on and um, do a review of the new Wilco album, which was cool because I got to listen to the new Wilco record before it actually came out. Uh, nice. And shared my thoughts with him. So go over and check that out on Discologist. Uh, that came out uh, last week. He's been doing a really good job. I mean, I, I learn about new music from him, which is which is really cool. I, I think I actually first listened to Lizzo after listening to their um, their their review of the album, which is you know doesn't say much about you know good things about me, but whatever. I thought I think they do a good job, and it's interesting, and I'm I'm looking forward to hearing you talk about Wilco. Are you a big Wilco fan? I am a big Wilco fan, so uh, this was fun. It was re- very exciting. Cool. You're kind of a big everything fan. No. No, no. Uh, I've never heard Lizzo, so you okay. know um, I'm not a fan of Lizzo. I may be at some point in the future, but I, as of now, I'm I'm not a fan of Lizzo. <laughs> okay, all right, we we figured that out. Okay, so what we're going to talk to you guys about tonight is the newest release from Live Fish, Dayton, eleven thirty ninety five. So this was actually episode one of the Helping Friendly Podcast, and I'm going to link to it in the show notes. It's available only on archive.org. It's actually really hard to find. Maybe I shouldn't link to it. It's, it's, um, it's not great, but I think we've come a long way. Um, Matt, I, I assume you've never heard it, Matt. I think it's like, maybe I just, maybe we just won't link to it. Anyway, it was our first episode, <laughs> which bodes well for this release because it means that, you know, it's an important show if we did it for our first episode of this podcast six years ago. So Matt, do you, are you familiar with this show? Somewhat. Um, I, I had definitely heard it, um, before I think probably in the context of the tweezer. Cause I think when, you know, way back when, when we did our big tweezer fest, I'm pretty sure I listened to every tweezer from fall 95. So, um, mm. I was, I would have familiarity with the show definitely from that. It was, it's not one that I've been like spinning a lot for years or anything like that. Um, but I imagine coming from 95 and coming from the great state of Ohio, you were probably pretty familiar with it for a long time, right? Yeah, I mean this tour is so dear to my heart because I this is the tour I saw my first show. I did not go to this show because Dayton is like it was like a four hour drive from where I grew up and I was sixteen at the time, but I did go two hours to the palace at Auburn Hills and saw my first show on October twenty eighth. So this Fall ninety five tour I just I feel like the sound of Fall ninety five is just ingrained in my in my memory. And um this show was released I guess by the time this comes out it'll be, you know, a week ago. And I think the, from what I read, I didn't hear it, but I think on fish radio on Sirius XM, Kevin Shapiro was going to 
kind of talk through it and and even run through some of the the jams. So if you're a SiriusXM subscriber, they'll probably redo that. Um, I assume so. That's kind of cool. Yeah, and of course, uh, we're going to feature an audience recording here uh, and the clips that we'll play for you. Um, but obviously, you should head over to livefish.com if you're not already a subscriber uh, and either subscribe or purchase the download uh, so that you get the full new soundboard uh, recording experience. Um, this one comes, this is Paul Languedoc's recording. They didn't do any remixing or anything like that, but it went to Fred Kevorkian uh, for mastering. There's a lot of really good Fall 95 shows, of course, and they've they've already done, I think, maybe five uh, fall releases. And there are other good 95 fall shows in November, like the November 18th, November 21st, the 12-8 show from, from Cleveland. But um, yeah, there must be something, and, and it might just be this particular jam. We're going to get into it, but the tweezer is, is, is notable for sure. And um, I think the show is really good and really solid. I really like going back to fall 95. I mean, listening to a lot of 2018, 2019 fish, it's really fast. (laughs) Everything is really fast. Even like the slow songs are really fast. It's like the, the sets fly by, you know? Yeah, that's one of the things that stuck out to me as I was listening back to the show. Um, and I'll, as we talk through some of the songs, you'll probably hear me mention that a bunch because it was one of the things that stuck out to me and not always in a positive way. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just step back in the time machine in 95. I think most people listening understand and, and are, are familiar with 95, but I think it's pretty, pretty cool. Really, really important year in fish history. The first uh, live, live album, live one came out in, in June and they had this summer tour that was just, you know, some people really, really love summer 95. I like it less than some people, but you know, insane long jams, really, I think kind of a monumental tour, right? It was kind of the first year they started playing some of these bigger amphitheaters and really going on a national tour. Of course, Jerry died in in August and, you know, that obviously brought more people. I think maybe that didn't bring as many people as the kind of legend goes, but they did start playing much bigger places where I first saw them at the Palace, which is outside of Detroit. It's a huge place. It's where the Pistons used to play like 20,000 or more. And I don't know that they were really playing venues of that size before that, you know, that they just, it was like a huge step up. And, and I think they stepped up to the, to the challenge musically. 94, they were playing, uh, you know, sheds in the summer and arenas in the fall where they had, you know, a big draw, right? So they played Boston Garden, they played MSG, um, they played like the Civic Center in Philly, which isn't you know, quite as big as like the spectrum would have been, but it's, you know, it's still like an arena probably held about 10,000 people at that time. Um, but then they would like switch and play like theaters and in other markets. Um, this is probably the first tour where they're pretty much consistently playing at, uh, you know, arenas, amphitheaters, uh, those types of places. I think that the exceptions are like, you know, they played in like Fort Worth at the Will Rogers Auditorium. I don't know what the size of that is, but that sounds not necessarily arena-like. <laughs> they did three nights at the Fox Theater in Atlanta, um, which is actually interesting because I, th- I would have thought that they would have had a pretty decent size 
draw in Atlanta at that point. Um, <clears throat> but then, you know, pretty much everywhere else they're playing arenas. Um, there are a lot of like this place, they're college arenas in a lot of cases. So like they're smaller arenas. So, you know, they're, they're sell- looking at selling maybe like 10 to 12,000 tickets. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's mm-hmm. still something to be doing that consistently across the country in all sorts of markets and all areas of the country. Um, so, I mean, definitely a, a big step up in a lot of ways this year. Yeah, it was their their first show at the Palace. Was this tour their first show at uh, Hampton Coliseum? Was this this tour? So there was, um, you know, their first and only show at Hershey Park Arena, which is notable, right? Yep, <clears throat> they played Just, the Spectrum for the first time. Yeah, so so a lot of a lot of milestones like that, and um, I think the a live one coming out, I think, was maybe a little bit more important than maybe I even knew at the time because I was listening to tapes that I had gotten, you know, through tape trading. But I think it did kind of turn turn a lot of people on to the live the live experience. I think so. I, I mean, I remember like not even being a fish fan. I remember a live one coming out and being, you know, having a big presence in record stores and a lot of people were like starting to check out the band and, um, you know, and it's, it's a little cliched, but the Jerry thing definitely, you know, injected a bunch of fans like it or not uh, into the scene that fall. Yeah, definitely. And, and then, you know, the other element is just like the new, the new music. So people who, uh, who haven't heard the five sixteen ninety five show, the, the benefit show where they debuted a ton of songs in early 95, they were as, as was the habit in the nineties, they came out and started the year with 15 new songs, you know, and kept debuting new songs. Um, so a lot of new material to work with along with old material that had been continuing to be, you know, mastered. I don't know. They were really, really, really on top of their game at this point. They, they did. And as we, we talked about this a bunch when we did our December 95 uh, episode last year with Drew and Chris. Um, but they, I mean, look at this schedule. The tour starts on September 27th and goes until December 17th. And there's one <laughs> little break in there right after Halloween uh, where they take like a week off. But other than that, and they're playing like so many runs of like one night after another. So, I mean, you know, you play that many shows that consistently for that long. I mean, your band is going to get super tight. If they did that today, I mean, th- they think about how great they would be by the end of the tour. You know, they'd never go for more than like four or five weeks at a time uh, these days. And that's, you know, once a year that they'll do that. If they went out and played, a, you know, 60 shows in a couple months, I mean, that that would be pretty crazy. Yeah, it's it's insane, and and the, some of the early part of the the tour that you mentioned, they started out um, late September out on the West Coast. I don't think any of those shows are very well known. They're not they're not as strong as as you know the tour definitely built momentum as they as they moved along. But there's a lot there that I think is kind of buried by you know November and and December. Um, I was looking back at the set list today. One of those early fall shows in Seattle, actually two shows in Seattle. They had the band Baby Gramps opened. Yeah. And I, I wonder if that was the last opener they ever had. Anyone who's listening, who who knows? I don't, because I don't remember any openers past. I thought it was like 94 was the last time they had an opener. But I feel like that was probably the end, right? Wasn't there a show in 97 Albany? I want to say maybe like the last show of the fall tour. Hmm. Really? This is something that, of course, we could look up. Um, <laughs> it's impossible to tell, unfortunately. I have to wait till the new encyclopedias arrive. 
Uh, Which hopefully will be soon. Uh, and I think it was the same thing. Like, didn't... Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So, yep, yep. I was right. 12, 12, 97, uh, J. Willis Pratt and were bionic. Holy shit. Up. All right, everybody who was going to tweet at us. I guess Matt answered that. But maybe there are others, too. Those are the two of the fall... Two of the many fall shows that I didn't go to. But I had a ticket to, to and my friend Chris went. And um, I'm really jealous. And I could have seen J. Willis Pratt and we're bionic if I had gone. You know? Yep. Missed them all. Missed Damn. all those bands. Damn. All right. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. So <laughs> so anyway, Fish was awesome in 95. Everybody knows that already. Should we get into talking through the show a little bit? Let's do it. All right, Matt, what I was <laughs> this like nonstop show i feel like when i was listening back to this the first set was over like as soon as it started it was like not that it was super short it just never slowed down and from the sample opener i just thought it was really really good reminder of just how fucking high tempo they were at all times it is actually pretty short too um a lot of these fall 95 shows same thing happens in fall 97 too there's a whole bunch of these shows that are like really, really, really good. And they're so much shorter than a lot of other uh, shows from other tours would have been. So I think this one, this show in total is two and a half hours. Uh, First set's like 65 minutes, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, they are, they're, they're short. um, They're short shows. Uh, You know, I think a lot of these fit on like two CDs, um, you know, of the ones that I've collected on CD over the years. Um, but you're right. The, the tempos are up. Um, there's also, you can tell that they're working from a set list because there's, you know, no very, very little break between songs. Um, and also things like, you know, this opening sequence of sample in a jar straight into the curtain, straight into ha ha ha. Like they have to have Mm -hmm. planned that out the way that it happens. Um, which is awesome. I mean, it's cool to see that, you know, that level of thought and planning put into the show uh, then. And then, you know, execution um, is is great. Uh, and, like, and like you said, they come out of the gate swinging hard, playing fast and loud and, you know, ready to go. It's It almost sounds like it's a sped up version of Sample in a Jar, but to my 2019 ears. But really... Yeah, really good, like very fast uh, trifecta to open there. And then the Julius, like eight minutes or something, really, really well, Jan, but just like what a rocking, uh, rocking Julius. You don't, they, that sort of, uh, that was a pretty big, big rocker in those days. Yeah. So here's where, you know, I mentioned earlier that I thought that the fast tempo thing kind of was a double edged sword. This is the, the, the bad side of it. Um, so in Julius, it's played so fast that on one hand you get Trey just shredding. I mean, playing so fast that it's super impressive uh, that he's able to, to play with that level of precision playing that fast. But it, at the same time, for me, they're playing it so fast that Fishman really can't swing the drum beat at all. And so mm. it loses a lot of what I feel is like the important part of Julius, which is that swing feeling. Um, and it turns into more of 
almost just kind of like an up-tempo rocker, um, which is fine. I just, I, f- I found myself not enjoying it quite as much. I know what you mean. I mean, we're also like, I feel like I'm so used to now like space developing, even in like shorter jams, you know, there's just, it's just, it's, it's reminds me, it reminds me more of like Humphreys. <laughs> there's just like, you know, they're just like hitting the notes fast, moving through the songs. And I mean, that's no disrespect to Humphreys. I'm just saying that it, it reminds me of like that more than like current fish. Yeah, I think the other thing is like besides the feel um, and the groove that changes a little bit, um, there's not as much of an opportunity to bring the dynamics down. So when mm. Fish is swinging, you know, um, on his ride symbol a little bit more, it creates a little bit more of an invitation to like when it, they start out at the beginning of the guitar solo to like bring things down and for Trey to build it up a little bit, play with some clean tone, you know, um, more kind of like muted notes from Mike and then build it up into something big. And here they just go balls out, you know, rocking right away and, and there's no build or anything like that. It's just a guitar shred fest. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally fair. 
and the there's a there's another um you know after NICU there's another another jam bathtub gin a little bit slower um but but still like still pretty pretty upbeat it is and i would say um when i was listening to this i was reminded that there was a time when jammed out bathtub gins were the exception um, and mm-hmm. this was a little bit more typical from the era, um, even a little bit more straightforward than a lot of the versions that we've seen in the past couple of years. Um, it's, it's fine. Uh, it's, you know, it's great, but there's not really much of a jam or, you know, um, any experimentation to it. It's just a, a good solid rocker. Yeah, that's, that's, um, yeah, that's how I felt. And I really, I mean, to me, the, even the fast enough for you was like pretty fast. <laughs> even yeah. though it was like the the slowdown of the set, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's it's yeah exactly another song where like to me some of the feeling is lost um, mm. by it, you know. And, and Trey actually screws up the opening lines of the song too. Yeah, which, it's a little um, bit. He's kind of yeah. laughing that off, and you know um, they get through it, but it's you know it's um, it's not this like delicate tender kind of take your breath away sort of ballad like it it, it can be i thought the the highlight of the set was the lizards which is the the longest song of the set which is just sort of funny to think about but um really nice and i did th- thought that was the time in the set where it felt the most stretched out like it felt like there was a little bit of time and space it's a really lovely version i think it is and i'm trying to remember like when's the last time they played lizards in the first set um, that was actually the, the real shocking thing to me. It was like, I heard lizards fire up and like, I was kind of, I was driving and I was listening to the show and I wasn't looking at what they were going to play. And, um, I was like, no, this can't be lizards coming because like, that's, that would be done in the encore. Right. It's a second. Um, yeah. It's a second set encore um, show. But I mean, 2000, so 2009, 2009. Yeah. June 7, so 2009. this was like what the fourth or fifth show of 3.0, um, six, seven, 2009 was the last time they played it in the first set. <laughs> uh, so, and I was at that show. Um, awesome. So, um, yeah. and back in the day, I mean, still predominantly second set, but there's like a healthy mix if you, if you look back in history. So, um, yeah, that was, it, I mean, it, it's really well played. That's, that was just the funny thing to me. I was like, whoa, lizards in the first set is like, and then I was like, maybe they're going to close the set. Maybe it's in the set closing position. Um, and then they throw in that fire, which was appropriate. Like if you're going to take a set like this, that they just tore through every single song, um, just playing, playing fire is a really nice way to, to cap it off. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely represented the set. Um, again, less than five minutes. <laughs> they just really got through it. Um, and they were making their way to the second set, which I think was was worthwhile and maybe some of that you know energy and and kind of fury that they were feeling really uh really did uh you know they were saving it up for the second set but yeah an hour and three minutes um first set so that was it was a fast one but a couple of highlights there and i think fun to listen to it has a very like there is a great kind of 95 sound in there especially in the the jams that, that we talked about so i enjoyed going back to this show so we're gonna get into set two and before we do that I want to tell you quickly about Mint Mobile. So if you're still using one of the big wireless providers in 2019, have you asked yourself what you're paying for? Because between expensive retail stores, inflated prices, hidden fees, you're probably being taken advantage of because they know you'll pay. This happened to me for a long time, and I do feel passionately about this. So Mint Mobile provides the same premium network coverage you used to, but at a fraction of the cost because everything's online. They save because they don't have retail stores that you don't need. 
and overhead that you're not going to use. So you just get a less expensive wireless bill. So I, I mentioned a couple of times I switched companies and I was like, I don't know. I don't know about this. Um, Mint Mobile seems too good to be true. It's really inexpensive and very easy. And life is just not inexpensive or easy ever in my experience. But um, it did it did work and I got great coverage and, and it's really, really affordable. So you can stop paying for unlimited data you don't use and you can choose between plans with 3, 8 or 12 gigabytes 4G LTE data. You can use your phone. I just like remove the SIM card and put it in another SIM card in. I don't know if you've ever done that, Matt, but I didn't know it was that easy, but you can just do that apparently. So just so you know. Um, so you can get your wireless plan for 15 bucks a month and get your plan shipped to your door for free. Go to mintmobile.com slash HFpod and uh, cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month. It's worth it. All right, Matt, set two. It's interesting to me about the set two. There's like the cars, trucks, buses opener. They kind of do this sometimes where they just go and play like a little song before getting into the jam i feel like that's it doesn't happen all the time because there's plenty of times when you just get a set opening you know set opening tweezer or set opening down with disease but i feel like in 2019 that's happened um more often but this little cars trucks buses is kind of what's like the if you were writing that set list what would be the point of opening with cars trucks buses is it just to like get in the groove for set two yeah i think i think that's mostly it like you don't necessarily have to start out with your big jam right away um there's you know there's sort of a practicality of it of like get asses into the seats you know i mean we know um fish fans love to dilly dally out in the corridors and wait until the last possible second and so it's like all right lights went down you're running for your seat we'll give you another like three or four minutes to get there i think um it's a nice way to kind of warm up the fingers again and get the band ready to to go full steam into something and there's just something that's a nice little like I don't know, entryway to the set. I feel like they did this most of the time back then, though. Um, if you think about, like, 93, what was it, August 93, when they opened every second set with 2001? And, like, mm-hmm. not a jammed-out version, <laughs> but just, like, a straightforward, like, okay, here's the beginning of the set. And even just, like, looking through this tour, uh, the next night at Hershey Park, they start the second set out with Haley's Comet before going into Mike's Groove. Um, mm-hmm. The night after that in New Haven, they do 2001 before they get into Maze. Um, uh, the night after that, they do Timber. Bef- well, they go into Sparkle after that. But um, <laughs> they get a 12, 12 14. Uh, yeah, the you know, curtain. Binghamton, they, they do the curtain uh, yeah. before Tweezer. And I actually thought this was awesome. Like, I'm a huge fan of that, that Binghamton show, and I love having the curtain before that big Tweezer. And I thought Cars, Trucks, Buses was just like a nice other way to do that um it's a cool song and like once again because they know what they're gonna do it's like the second they finish cars trucks buses bam tweezer they're just into it um, yeah that's true that's a good point i mean i guess the the the, sim- the sometimes that they did go straight into the jam vehicle like the new year's 95 drown in the second set or uh you know like one or two others maybe they just like maybe they realize that like the niagara falls you know the split open and melt that opens the second set yeah maybe they were like wait we can do that maybe we should just try that once in a while but i bet it's probably hard to especially at this they only had what 12 years of experience as opposed to now when they have whatever 30 something years it's probably a little bit harder to get into yeah, just ju- jump right into it. Or maybe you don't want to, like you were saying. Maybe it's more of a choice thing than feeling like you need to need to ease into it. Hey, sometimes you need to play Mercury before you play a 30 minute, 38-minute Ruby Waves, you know? 
sometimes, sometimes, you, get... sometimes you think the mercury is going to be the thing and it's not the thing. It turns out to be the, the ruby waves. A, a <laughs> very wise man said that once. It did. It's the thing before the thing. Um, but in this case, the thing is the tweezer, which is pretty awesome. I, I think one, the joke I was going to make at the beginning about this being episode one is that I think our episode 162 is equally better sounding probably than the as the audience version to this soundboard you know what i mean like i've listened to this audience recording many times and it's it's you know it's like a kind of a cavernous sounding audience recording like this soundboard is just it's really nice yeah i mean so that's why i didn't make that joke earlier because it didn't really work (laughs) i mean it wasn't a joke (laughs) so uh, uh, so first off, uh, it, it better sound better. Uh, I hope it does. Uh, otherwise I'm going to be really depressed. Um, and this is, yeah, I mean, it's a good, it, it, you know, some of these, um, I, I think there's a lot of really good sounding audience tapes in fall 95. Um, the soundboard's good. I, it would have been awesome if they had done like a multi-track track, uh, remix of this, um, the it's a it's a little hot it's a little compressed uh it was kind of hurting my ears as i was driving along but um that's okay the music was good enough that it made me feel better <laughs> what did you think about the uh the tweezer going like we went back to just talking about how you said the the tweezer was you know one of the things that, that you listen to many tweezers um did this live up to the live up to the hype it's good although as good as this show is um I think it's hard to have like look at it unbiased without thinking about everything that was just about to come on this tour. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like I, I was thinking about like this tends to happen on a lot of tours. Like they start out and they play some shows and people get excited and then they play like one show that's like way better than everything on the tour up to that point and people get fixated on that. And then like in retrospect, that was actually kind of just the beginning of something. And like all of the shows that came after that were awesome. Like think about like in, you know, summer of 2015, like Atlanta, people were like, oh my God, like that's amazing. And in retrospect, like I don't, I feel like like I, don't, I never look back at that because it's like the man and Magna Ball and the Merryweather shows, everything that came after that. It was like, oh yeah, that was just the stepping on point. That wasn't the the cool thing. And I feel like I can look at this show that way. Like at, you know, at the time, December 1st, 1995, people were probably bugging out about this. Um, and then that night they played a show at Hershey that blows this out of the water. So it's like, um, it's, it's hard to like take it out of context and just look at it, but it is a very strong show. It's just that, um, it, it was, you know, just the beginning of what was about to, to happen in this amazing month of, uh, of December. Yeah. The, that, that's totally fair. I actually, I really very often go back to those Atlanta 2015 shows, but I, I might be did. like, that's exactly why I said it. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think, I think the point is true. And I think I might be in a, in a minority there, but um, yeah, I totally, totally agree with you. And there's, there's something like that, especially back in these days, like it's, we've talked about the ratings, right. And the show ratings in retrospect, and it's sort of like kind of distorted the, understanding and and appreciation of some of these shows because i think people have gone back and then you know re-rated them later but back in the day you'd wait like a month to get a tape if you weren't you know there or friends with the taper or something so yeah you'd but you'd get them like in sequence and then you'd listen to them kind of slowly in sequence and to me it was always like the next show yeah they're they're 
once you got a great show it was like there were always like a few shows after that that were just kind of like fine they were, they were harder fewer and, and further between i also think for this show like this set even with this tweezer gym which is you know what almost 20 minutes i feel like people would complain about this it's like you know one big jam and then like some other good stuff and like a scent of the mule for 12 minutes in the middle i feel like people would be like yeah the four they really fucking fucked up the fourth quarter here you know with free strange design yeah this would get dinged hard on the fourth quarter uh <laughs> i i really think so um that's the other thing it's like it, it the and the tweezer's great but like you know another sort of micro version of what i was saying before is like this tweezer is great and it, it has these three distinct sections to it where they first kind of do it like a very typical tweezer jam and then they um do kind of a 94-ish thing where it sort of deconstructs itself and there's space and dissonance and stuff and then it goes into this like fish starts playing double time and it's like this driving rocker well you know, two nights later, the very next tweezer that they would play in sequence is the New Haven tweezer mm-hmm. where they did that and they mastered it. I mean, mm-hmm. this is like this seems like a warm up for that version in retrospect. Um, so it's like you can see how like I don't you know, I don't know if it was conscious or like, you know, what just, you know, like the, the, the natural direction of the playing. But like they were building towards this thing. And then after New Haven, they didn't really do it that way. Um, but this was a, a very nice kind of like practice run or like, you know, um, starting inspiration for what they would do later in a much more kind of complete form.
Yeah, totally. And I th- also think just I, I agree in that the like this is really fun to listen to. And that twelve to tweezer you're talking about is is even more fun. And thinking about this is what two months into the tour, right? And they're you know still figuring it out. Really, like yeah. some of the late September, early October stuff is is a little bit harder to. Um, it's, it's just not stuff you go back to as much. And I, I, this is like my soapbox, but like, they're just such better musicians now. Like they can go on the first night of a tour having not played a show in six months and play a show as good as this, where it would take them a month or two to like get to the point improvisationally. Yeah. I just think they have more tools and more experience to bring to the table. It doesn't mean that like the improv is as always as interesting or as unique or whatever, but like. They just, man, they're such better musicians now. I think it takes them so much longer. I mean, so much less long to just like go into, go into it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's something to that. I think the, the flip side of that is that they probably rehearsed more between tours back in 95. So the group speak is a little bit tighter, um, Mm, from the mm -hmm. get go. Um, I think you're going to get a lot of feedback on the internet about saying that they're better musicians now than they were in 1995. <laughs> Bring it. And I can't say that, uh, I can't say that I would completely disagree with that. <laughs> I think they're just different kinds of musicians now. Um, there's mm-hmm. a little bit more feeling, a little bit more emotion. Um, but I think it's, uh, a little bit unrealistic to say that like from a straight mechanics point of view, that they're better than they were back yeah. then. Totally. They don't play as fast or as technically proficient at all times. Yeah. But but they can they can improvise still really well. I yes. think it is about feel and and about communication, you know? Like yes. communication that's not directly related to right. on stage playing. Yep. Um yep. so okay, well internet, tell us tell us what you think. Um That's at, Marcus- at RJB two. <laughs> <laughs> Makasupa Trey gets on the the percussion kit. This is like a classic 95 sound, right? Yeah. Um, so the the segue into Makasupa is awesome. Um mm-hmm. Mike kind of leads the charge here. Uh Trey Trey starts playing the chords, but Mike picks up on it very easily and since he's the prominent voice of that song, he he it's important for him to get on board right away, which he does. This um a, as a counter to the songs that I dinged a little bit in the first set for being too fast and losing their feel. This it happens to Makasupa. It doesn't sound like a reggae song um, because they're playing it so fast. But I think the flip side of that is it's really cool because when you get to the end and they do the um, uh, when they're singing in the round, it's so fast that it actually kind of sounds like it's imitating like one of Trey's digital delay loop jams. Um, mm. It's got this really kind of staccato uh, thing to it instead of like uh, you know the um, uh, the the reggae thing where they're kind of dropping the one and whatnot. Um, which I, I think it's really, really awesome um, and a very, very unique version of Makasupa. Thank you. 
Makasupa was just so playful back then. It know? was. Yeah, I was going to say, it was actually, for people who didn't like get tapes back then, it was actually like a very special thing to have happen. I mean, they played it a lot, but but not... You know, it was like a it was a fun special thing, and and the three versions, this one and the two after the, the one next one after this one was the twelve fourteen, which is just an outstanding show and a really like that's a good makasupa. And then there's the one that opens the second set of the the real gin set. So there, it was used really well and appropriately. You know, it wasn't like it was fun, but it wasn't like a joke. It, it really set up like more interesting sets. I don't know, weird. Yeah. You know, um, the antelope was like, Trey's like, he's playing like way more than even is necessary in the antelope, like the in the Marco Escondola section. I don't know if you noticed that, but it's like, it's like the cool down section. He just like can't stop just like soloing over everything the whole time. It's like, that's how that antelope was the whole time. Yeah, I got it like, I don't know, it, it, it like induced an anxiety attack in me or something like that. The antelope, like... <laughs> Just not used to it. Well, I was driving down the highway and there's cars around me and this insane music just had me feeling very, like, weird. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. It's <laughs> it's an intense antelope. Um, yes, it is an intense, antelope. and it caps it caps off like the first half of the set, or maybe this is about the two first two thirds of the set, um, in a big way. Like it's 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 really really awesome. Um, from from this point forward, I think the set takes a little bit of a step back. Yeah, I will say that the scent of a mule that follows the antelope is not horrible, and and that is um, just a great thing in my opinion. This is a good one though. It was pretty different than than other, you know. It's not like really out there, um, more more guitar action too. But did you did you notice the scent of a mule? Yeah, I mean it's fine, but I found myself I found myself not that interested in it because of its placement in the show. Um, I don't know. It's just it's one gripe that I've had. I just really feel like scent of a mule should be a first set song. Mm-hmm. Um, Every single time I hear it in the second set, it just, it's, it takes a lot of time. Uh, this is, I mean, most of them are 10, 12 minutes long and at a critical point in the show. Um, and so, yeah, I, I get why a lot of people don't dig it or get frustrated with it. Cause it's just like, it feels, it feels a little bit like time that's better spent elsewhere. I got to, I got to see it in the last summer show that I saw, um, Saratoga second set, not out of Wilson. Um, which was just very interesting and what a special, special (laughs) placement for me. Um, So the strange design, um, it's the last song that I wanted to mention where the tempo kind of infects it a little bit. Um, Just like fast enough for Hmm. you. I think it loses its feeling played this fast. It's just, and it's not crazy. It's like maybe, you know, five BPM too fast or something like that. Um, But like in the, at the ending, it felt like a, almost like a power pop song instead of a, um, a ballad, which, uh, hmm. and this is, I mean, Strange Design may be my favorite fish ballad. So I think I'm a little bit more sensitive about it in that way. But, um, but yeah, so a little bit disappointed in that. Um, and then, you know, yeah, Amazing Grace. We didn't mention Free either, which um, early version of Free that has that long sort of droning jam in the middle uh, with Trey on mm-hmm. percussion. Um, but, I like I liked these ninety five versions when they I felt like they needed to go a lot longer to be effective. So like think of like the Cap Center version uh, that they would play about a month later, I believe. Um, that's really really good, uh, but it's like twenty five minutes long. Um, this mm-hmm. more concise one, just not uh, not not my cup of tea. Just didn't do it for you. Yeah, but um, so so you did so you would give them a poor showing in the fourth quarter. I would give him a, a, a yeah a, a a bad fourth quarter uh, not bad but um a, a, a definitely a uh, step down in quality in the fourth quarter the encore of course the hood like all ninety four ninety five hoods just really man beautiful building of a peak I feel like this is just like the rebas and the hoods from this era were just stunning you know for the most part so does it still does it still live up to the the hype in general um this this show all things considered and the with the power of uh you know hindsight yeah once again i mean i think it's it's a good solid show if you just take it on its own if you were like i'm gonna just play a random show from throughout fish's career it's not gonna disappoint you um within the context of fall 95 uh it's good you know i mean it's uh, and i and i um i i think people that get something out of it that that were very excited about this being released um that's that's awesome um yeah i don't know that i would put it on the top shelf with mm-hmm. a lot of the other fall 95 shows 
All right. Well, I think, um, yeah, the, the tweezer, it's, <clears throat> you're sort of like, it's a, a little bit of an embarrassment of riches in tweezer for fall 95. Right. And it's almost like there are other shows that have, like I was mentioning when we, when we started talking about this, that have, I think really interesting elements that, uh, maybe are more unique than this show. Like this was just a really, you know, it was a really solid solid show there were there are other shows in the fall 95 that are a little bit more i think unique but i but i enjoyed going back to it and i i just hope they keep releasing really you know good sounding shows um like very often because i would like that yeah i and i would even love to see them um i mean i love these periodic releases on live fish um you know, I'd love to see them maybe get into the direction of releasing more kind of box thematic box sets. So a tour or a venue or a city or, you know, something like that, um, where you could maybe have, uh, you know, maybe there's a box set of like the three Nutter Center shows here, or, I mean, you know, ideally there's at some point, you know, a December 95 or a fall 95, you know, collection that comes out that, that helps mm-hmm. us to understand all of this stuff within context. Um, but, uh, you know, otherwise keep them coming because, you know, new archival fish is always a good thing. I like it. Um, all right. Well, we're going to, we're going to leave it there. We're going to be back in a couple of weeks with more fish podcasts. Um, and like we said at the beginning, um, we're really excited about a bunch of new stuff coming out. So be sure to check the show notes. And also if you like what you hear, give us a review on Apple podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Cause you can find us almost everywhere. Right, Matt? Are we everywhere? We're everywhere you want to be. We're everywhere you want to be. So, um, appreciate your support and, um, yeah, give us a review if you haven't and give us feedback, tweet at us or send us messages on Facebook or email or all those things. And um, we'll be back in a couple weeks. And thank you all for listening. Keep on rocking.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.